0: Welcome to Home Education Matters, the weekly podcast supporting you on your home education journey. Hello and welcome to another episode of Home Education Matters. And today I'm joined by Richard Clark, who wrote the book Calm Pond, and we are going to be talking about how to support your child's well-being, particularly children who are perhaps primary aged. And so I'm really pleased to be joined by Richard because some of his ideas, I think, are really helpful for those of us who have children at home, and we just want to make sure that we're giving them the best possible grounding when it comes to supporting their health and their well-being. So first of all, Richard, thank you so much for joining me today. And do tell us a little bit about how you came to... uh, play a role in the home education community.
1: But uh, yeah there's, there's two things really regarding home education i suppose there's, there's been two uh main reasons that I, I'm, I'm interested in that community. First of all i was a deputy head teacher in a in a big secondary school. Um which I, I, I am not now because my son's autistic and, and I decided to go part-time because he needed that extra help. He struggled with after-school and before-school clubs, et cetera. Um, but I dealt a lot with with parents who were considering home education and, and sometimes gave them sort of lesson packs, et cetera, because I could understand fully the reasons for why they they, they wanted to go that way. Um, and I'm in a, in a sort of similar position, I suppose, in the sense that they've come from a very small Primary school of some of the children to a, a large secondary school, and it's very very different for them, and and, it, and it's too difficult for them to cope with. Um, so on that score, but also on the score which I've just said there, because I am aware of the possibility that my son, who is in a very nice primary school at the moment, could well end up uh, being home educated because there are is the potential that he could struggle at secondary school. Um, so I've got sort of two interests. I've been in the secondary school as a teacher, where I've dealt with parents who home educate, and I could well become an home educator myself in the future.
0: I think that scenario where a parent has their child in a a kind of like cuddly-feely primary school but feels that looming, slightly daunting secondary school coming towards them, I think that is a very common scenario amongst home educators. And I think there's generally three categories of home educators. This is very broad. One category, never put their children into school. The second one, take them out either around SATs or going into secondary school, so year six, year seven. And the other ones take them out year 15. um, Not year 15, year... What is that? you are about 21, then. (laughs) I know. You can tell I'm not in the school system. Uh, When they're age 15, so what's that, year 11? Yeah, yeah, 10 and 11. And that seems to be the... They seem to be the pressure points. Well, at least the first one is an ideological choice. You don't put your child Mm. in school. But the other ones seem to be around the the time of a big transition. So transition yeah. from primary to secondary. And I know that when I was a teacher back in the day, there was actually a teacher who was responsible for the transition from primary to secondary. Yes. That was their their role because it's such a big, such a big I, issue.
1: yeah I did that job. I, I did that job for a spell as well. Uh, and, and I think the other thing that's that's difficult for parents is obviously as well, we as a, a child now my child would benefit from an EHCP. OK, the problem with the EHCPs are it sort of is based on what needs they're showing at the moment and what's being provided. So you're at a snuggly little primary school where actually we don't, you don't have any needs, but you know the needs to come. So that there's sort of no way with the EHCP that it takes into account what might happen and, and, and a prediction. And so you've got to let your child sink to a certain extent before then you can start saying I need an EHCP, which... There's a, there's a fault in the system there. there, there really is. And we I noticed that as a secondary school teacher, we'd, we'd get some children and instantly you'd say, this child has, must have an EHCP. No, no. And, and and then other children who come and you're surprised they've got an EHCP in comparison to some of the children who haven't. And I do think it's very much based on their experiences at primary school. With, without yeah. And
0: we did an episode on the EHCP process quite recently and I was... I didn't realize that it was all about basically school provision. You know, that the basically it was like this is what you, you, yeah. The school needs to be able to provide, and if they can't, you need a school that will provide these other things. So when you actually start home educating, things like they need one-to-one support and they need a relaxed, calm setting, you're doing that anyway when you home educate. So yeah. a lot of it yeah. actually becomes really quite redundant. So yeah. today we're going to be talking about the uh, supporting our, chi- our children's well-being. Now, this is a subject very close to my heart because obviously my background is psychotherapy and I'm now a life coach. So I do think it's very important that we uh, that we allow our children to uh, build up their muscles, their kind of well-being muscles from a young age, and that I th- always feel that this is something that school sort of drastically avoids having to do and focuses on a lot of more quantifiable things. But as home educators, we're able to to make that shift and to have this focus in our home education lives. So I wonder, Richard, whether you would be able to give us um, some of your uh, main pieces of advice for our parents who want to support their children's wellbeing.
1: Yeah, I, I think my... my thing has always been that it's got to be a shared experience you know obviously i'm I'm coming from the school background so that as well as school emphasizing it parents are emphasizing it but obviously for children who are home educated it's important of what what was traditionally called pshce in schools you know that personal social education which is is a really important subject but can often struggle in the sense of you know, a lot of people don't go to university and study PSHCE. So it's obviously a lot of teachers who are specialists in other subjects who then become the teachers of PHCE. And there's so many important qualities that we need our children to have. Um, that that I I feel we need to start with as young as possible. You know, the younger we start with them, and I can see children who struggle with certain things. And by the time you've got them in secondary, to a certain extent, I think it's too late. That really needs to learn really needs to start early. And primaries do a do a great job. I think the more we can do the better. And then then sort of coupled with that, the reason I wrote a book was that, (laughs) I've got to be honest with this, I I found my children got bored really quickly. You know, you'd start a book with 12 chapters. I started, I thought The Hobbit was a great book when I was a child, but I read chapter one and it were like, they were falling asleep already. And then the thrill next night, we're doing chapter two, it, it wasn't really happening. And I always felt like I wanted stories which were short, you know, five to 10 minutes for that sort of age group between five and nine, where there's meaning to it, and even if it wasn't a story they didn't enjoy, next night we're doing a different story. Um, And that's where I felt that the learning could come through because I thought well, what would be good is to have stories around characteristics that you'd want your children to have and then have a discussion point at the end of it where you can say, well, why did this character do this and why did this character do that? Um, And I chose... Talking animals, because I'm I'm from the Disney area. You know, I, I'm from the, the the talking animal area, etc. And I just like that old fashioned idea of th- there's magic out there, and I, and I, and I just think that that's the way to portray things to children. I think they grow up too early, uh, and I liked the idea that you know talking animals and animals that we can learn from.
0: My children and I, who are, my children are 15 and 17, and last night we decided we were going to get takeout pizza and watch a film, and we decided we were going to watch the live-action Little Mermaid film that came out last year, I don't know if you've seen it, lots of talking animals, so we started watching it and my son, who is 17, he's sort of like, he was scoffing a bit at the singing, neither he nor I like a lot of singing in our films. And we were sort of like laughing a bit about it. And then my daughter paused it and was like, mm, yeah, it is, it isn't very good, but I, I would quite like to watch it. So I was like, oh, okay, yeah, you know, so we, we started watching it. And they loved the talking animals. It was like their favorite bit, the jokey crab, and the sweet little fish, and then the seagull. I mean, it was just... The talking animals, even at these late teen years, they still absolutely resonate with. There's something about a cute talking animal that can they can get away with so much in a book, can't they?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you can, you can you can portray it how you want. It's it's a I suppose it's an author's cheat, really. But it, it for me, it, it was just like that's how I grew up, and and I, and I just felt like actually we need we need that a little bit in our children. They're on the the phones from such a young age now, and things like that. And just a traditional story. Where, where there's dialogue, you know, between between parent and child and carer and child. I just think it's so important.
0: I think as well that idea of using a book as a discussion prompt is very much in a very solid, long tradition, isn't it? This idea, yeah. you know, from, from really very early on, I'm thinking of like Victorian literature, Just So stories, things like this, that were very much on this idea of, what sort of lesson do you want to teach the child? And I think these slightly went out of favour, but I think they've, there's been a bit of resurgence about this idea that you can actually convey through through good quality children's literature, you can actually convey a certain moral message.
1: Yeah, without doubt. I mean, I love, and I wrote my book before this, at the and I can't give it the full title. It's uh, The Horse, the the fox and the and, and and i just think i watched that and i think how how did he do that because all it is 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 like sayings and but, but it's such a deep message because you know it, i think uh, when i sit with my children and they watch that i do have to explain it to them because at the end it's like well the boy didn't have a home and at the end he didn't have a home but there's so much you can talk yeah but okay what 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 could it been well you know and, and we had a long discussion about how the animals are bonded and and they all have different personalities. And I know the psychology of it is it's actually four personalities of the same person. I think that that's the deeper meaning of it. Um, but I just think there's so many fantastic sayings and things to discuss in that, but how it's put together, I, I still can't explain myself because it actually there's not much of a story going on there, but there is so much of a story going on there. It's a really fantastic, it's a fantastic piece of work.
0: Yeah, it is. It's a very popular book. And my favourite book when my children were younger was a book called something like The Boy and the Bear and in the boat, or The Boy and the Bear and the Boat. And it never really, it never really became very popular. But it's a very beautiful book about, uh, which is a very, very unusually written. Which is just about a boy and a bear in a boat, and <laughs> nothing happens. They get in the boat, they travel across a lake, and they get to the other side. Nothing, no plot just this l- very beautiful gentle dialogue between the bear and the boy and for for many years it was my chosen gift at a, at birthdays like for yeah. for other yeah. children i would always buy this book because i just i loved it it was a it, it it there was something about it that encapsulated something that we get a lot in home education which is this this lack of rush and a lack of a hurry and a lot of boredom and a and a lot of sort of gentle just like natural rhythms and yeah. i think as home educators because we don't tend to have the, the we don't have the morning rush and we don't have the school run and we don't have a lot of timetabling days do become quite languorous in a very yeah. nice way um and i think maybe um one thing i would say when it comes to supporting well-being of children is that i think the uh, i think allowing a child to be bored and discover their what they're passionate about so they have that time to find out the things that they're really interested in rather than a- adopting other people's interests. I think that is a helpful one to give them something that matters to them. So they understand that pe- people have different things that they care about and that's okay.
1: Yeah, no, 100%. And and that calm bit, that, that's the, the, the thing, the reason I call the book Calm Pond. It, I mean, as I've said to you earlier, we, we do own the pond. The pond is actually part of the garden, if you get what I'm saying. And it is beautiful at times. It can be quite, when it's windy, and uh, we live in Blackstone Edge, which is quite a, in the wilds, and it can be, you know, sort of bashing waves as if it was the sea, and then you can go out half an hour later, and it's beautiful and calm. And I think that that's the key as well. We Often with children, I find that, in, and the part of this is anger management, is that instantly they want to react and And there's got to be that calmness that this is part of everything I think to do um with with the skills that they need to do. that that calmness to first of all think think before I act. and and I, I think that's so important.
0: How do you help a child or support a child a you know a young child to create that kind of moment of pause before they react in in a sort of very heightened way?
1: It, 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 the thing is, there's no there's no one way that, that helps a child to do that. Every child is different. And so we have lots of different methods that we can do. I mean, I, I'll be honest with you, I teach secondary children. Um, so often you can get a fidget toy will help a certain child. That, that, that's going to help them. Sometimes it's just the fact that they need a timeout, just, just a few minutes outside the classroom. That's their period of calm. And then there's other children where I like to do the senses, which, which basically... You feel anything, right? What can you smell? What can you see? What can you hear? And just the fact that there's been that time to reflect, uh, you know, that helps some children as well. In, in the old days, it was always the same thing: count to ten. That was always the 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 stock answer. But if you're feeling angry, count to ten. The fact is, we we're not all like that. It's it's the same with revision for exams and things like this. Everybody revises and everybody learns in 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 their own way. And so is is being calm. It's about finding the right strategy for the right child, and that's what education is to a certain extent. You know, we don't all learn in the same way. There's a very famous cartoon where there's a monkey and an elephant, and a and and they say, right, all of you climb that tree. And 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 that's the thing with it. It's a, t- a test that's easy for somebody, but not as easy for somebody else. But yet, if we gave a different test, the results would be very, very different. And it, it's it's horses for courses. Simple as that.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right every child has to learn how they personally regulate their emotions and so for some children it's funny you're talking about counting to 10 because the procedure you mentioned about the things you can see the things you can smell that's the classic um dbt 54321 yeah. method and that is actually counting you know it's basically distracting yeah. your mind with other things now for some children that works really well for others that just won't work because mm. you're so in the moment that actually trying to distract yourself it, isn't allowing your emotions to have space and we've been doing an interesting podcast series with Sarita Patney and we've been talking about different approaches to parenting and one of our episodes was about allowing your child to work through their emotions and to talk through their emotions and to sort of feel their emotions but I I do find some that for some children that can't come immediately you need to have that period of calm like you say is that what your book calm pond is mainly about
1: yeah, it's mainly each story. So there's some of it is, but some of it isn't. So like there's obviously stories on things like uh, empathy, understanding differences, anxiety. But there's also stories about equality uh, and honesty and, and coping with change. And there's even one that's on bereavement. So it's not just, you know, as a, a certain extent about calming down. But it's all about being calm in certain situations, if that makes sense. But the situation do fluctuate. Like I say, it's not all about anxieties. One is about just strengths and weaknesses that sometimes realizing somebody might be better at this than me, uh, you know, but also not to do yourself down and think, well, weaknesses need to be improved. And if you are good at something, be be proud of that. Be proud that you're good at something. My, my child, I've my got one child who's brilliant at art. He loves doing, but he always puts himself down. and I, And I find that, you know, one of the worst things about secondary school. Whenever you at primary, it's as if like children love being rewarded. Then at secondary school, it becomes like some sort of shame that you know we I don't want to be rewarded anymore. And 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 that, and that's a real thing that has hurt me more at secondary school than anything else because I want children to be proud that they've succeeded, uh, and a lot of that is down to what they think their peer group will will make of that. That sometimes being a success is not a not a good thing. You know, being they- a success on TikTok is brilliant. Being a success in your English work is not brilliant. And we've got something wrong in society when things are like that. I
0: think a lot of it as well for teenagers is that they don't like to stand out. You know, there's there's a sense of really needing to be in a herd when you're a teenager. Yeah. And this idea that if your teacher singles you out for praise, it's still singling you out. So it becomes it's safer to just kind of amalgamate yourself into the herd. So let's yeah. take some of those topics that you mentioned. So when it comes to empathy, what would be your main piece of advice for supporting your child to become more
1: empathetic i think just that every opportunity you get that you, you you get the children to understand the other point of view now i know that's sad you say you've got a son and a daughter and you know how difficult that can be but that just that we can even if it's says something on the news or anything you know that we try and reflect all right that's that point of view but what if somebody said this and that we're always trying to give the, the opposing point of view. And obviously we, we have our point of view, and that's fine, that we understand that other people are entitled to, to have a different point of view. And actually something that you're doing that you might think is great might be something that somebody else is not as keen on. And it, and it's that that just understanding other people. So for me, it's every opportunity you get. I mean, watching the television can be an opportunity. Reading camp on can be an opportunity. Just talking to your child, even when you're doing... Home tuition lessons, etc. There's so many opportunities where you can sort of think, well, how how would somebody else think about this? Is there any other point of view here? I'm just taking every opportunity that we can.
0: This is very much what you were saying about the shared experience, isn't it? The idea that that the parent plays a pivotal role in allowing the child to see alternatives and to let yeah. them let them be there to discuss them with them.
1: 100% yeah I, I, that's as I say I, I think when it's it's a home and a school it both have got to work together okay obviously in the home it's it's doubly important there that you know that message is getting through that the children understand all these things I mean for example re- resilience is, is one that I'm really keen on I, I'm gonna be honest with you when I was um, 19 I broke my leg extremely extremely badly Um, to the extent of I was training to be a PE teacher. I was a a semi-professional footballer. Um, And I got told I'd I'd not walk properly again. I'd have to give up being a PE teacher and I'd never play football again for the rest of my life. Um, And I didn't accept that. And and basically they gave me a a caliper that fitted in the back of my shoe. It was like a big metal um, piece piece of material with a band around it, which was like so ungainly I could hardly walk with it. But then I kept researching myself, Well, there must be something else. And somebody said, oh, there's this plastic thing that goes down the back of your leg. You can put it inside your sock. So I started using that after, I must say, using Velcro to actually lift my leg up and tie it around my my, my shin, which made it bleed, et cetera. But I was so determined that this, this can't be it. So I would try things again, again, again. And then when I found this plastic sheet, I started running, I started changing my action. Even with football, I went from doing these things to doing something else, if you get what I'm saying. And and eventually I got I got back to, to where I was. And I, I did become a PE teacher. And I even played in a national football final and was getting paid to be played. And 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 the only reason that happened was the fact that I wasn't prepared to give up. I was so resilient. And I can't explain why I, I was resilient, why that happened, but there was something inside me that made made me think I'm not gonna give up. I I, I, I want this so badly uh, that I'm not gonna give up. And and that's why. I think that we, we, so with parents and teachers, whoever, we, we do have to make sure our children think that, you know, when you fall down, you get back up again, to quote a famous song. But that, that, that you know, I really think that that's so important. And the story in the book is about a chicken, which I thought was the best one to use, because I always think a chicken gives up really easily. And it's just a simple story where the chicken wants to jump over the fence. Nobody knows why, but keeps trying, keeps hitting the fence, smacking the face, da-da-da-da keeps getting tips on how to run faster, how to flap my wings quicker, keeps getting a and eventually she reaches the wall because all she wants to see is the sun come down and the horizon and and, and the beautiful sights that everybody's seeing that she's never, never had. But that is basically me, because I wanted to be in that place, if that makes sense. So resilience is a big one for me because of of my personal experience. But and also the fact that I see children give up far too quickly. Uh, and I think it's really important that we realise that actually failure and weakness is is not a is not a bad thing, and and sometimes sadness isn't a bad thing. Um, you know, I think that, that it's it's important that we understand that those things can make us grow.
0: I think resilience is such a. Um, is such a popular concept at the moment. I know there's there's a book called grit I think and there are other there's a lot of studies uh, going on in psychological departments in America as we speak on the importance of resilience and how it's one of the most clear indicators of success in life is resilience. But I know that there's also a, a, a slight backlash against the idea of resilience, because for some neurodivergent people, it, resilience, it, it's, a, it's a concept that doesn't really fit with their life experience. But how would you say um, how would you say you can build resilience? Because it sounds like you kind of were born with it or maybe didn't realize yeah. you had it until you were tested.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that's the thing. I can't I, I explain where it comes it came from, but I, I just think it's that it's that determination that I, I want something and I, I'm, I'm going to try and, and keep getting it. Um, and and that basically, I suppose it's also encouragement of people around you. I think if if the people around you are positive and say you can do this, you can do this. I always remember when I, I was told in the hospital. Um the the, the, sur- the surgeon or the, the consultant, it was called him, wasn't a particularly nice chap, if I was really honest. It was, he was very matter of fact. And it, it was very much like you did this playing football, so it's self-inflicted anyway. It was not pleasant. And he said, it is a one in a million chance that you will ever, ever be a PE teacher, and then walked off. And the nurse at the far side heard him say this, and she just walked over and she said, perhaps you're that one in a million, eh? And just that at that time, you know what I mean. It, it's it's those things. I, I just think it's finding things that can lift you, and 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 just make you feel a little bit better. It's that that timing. So surrounding yourself with positivity and, and and positive people, and you know that's not hard. It's hard at times, especially with the times we've had recently, for people to always be positive. But I do think that helped me that I had I had people around me who who, who supported me. Um, and just also, you know, being able to laugh at yourself a little bit as well and being able to realise that sometimes I can't always... Uh, I remember being in the hospital and the hospital DJ came round and, and he was talking to me and he said, uh, do you want me to play you a song? And I, and, and I'm there, you know, with my leg high open, and everything. And I said, yeah, fine. He says, you're a young lad, you like something in charts, wouldn't you? And I said, well, yeah, that'd be nice, you know, because he didn't have any of the songs that I liked. So I said, listen at two o'clock, I'll put you on first. So I put on at two o'clock and, he's there and he says, and I've got this special song now. Here's the Proclaimers and I Could Walk 500 Miles. And I just thought, is he done that deliberately? But all the songs you can. But it, it made me smile, you know, in the like lowest moment of my life. I'm a 19-year-old lad being told I won't walk again. Um, and I'm getting somebody playing I Could Walk 500 Miles. And the, the thing is, I suppose I could take it in a bad way, but I didn't. I just took it as that's funny and it, and it's that building up that part of your personality you see the funny side of things and you know take the positives
0: yeah and I think I think a lot of people can feel that they're just not positive people or that they find it difficult to find positives. But I would say that it's always possible to foster the, the personality that does find the positives because it's just a habit that you get into. And so the more it's like a confirmation bias. So when, when you look for negative things or you expect negative things to happen, your brain looks for them. Just like when you're on car journeys and you're looking for red cars, you see lots more red cars than you do blue cars because you're just looking for them. So if you, train your brain to actually start expecting and looking for good things you just see more of them and it alters your whole mindset it's it's the whole basis behind the fake it till you make it kind of mugs that we and t-shirts that we
1: see but it 100%. actually has a
0: strong psychological founding doesn't it
1: yeah 100 percent. and i i've also in my personal experience well so just make myself busy i think i think if 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 obviously you're having a down time and then you sat on your own and you put yourself in a room on your own and you're not doing anything, then it's going to get worse for you. So even if it's taking yourself out for a walk or doing something, whatever it is, I think when you, your mind's busier, then you've more chance of positivity sinking in. If if you just sit there and and, and, and let it all sink in, it just makes you more and more depressed.
0: And you mentioned anxiety um, as one of the things that your, your book looks at. And I, and I think anxiety is an issue that we see a lot in our children, perhaps not so much in younger children, but we certainly do in teenage children. And I think this idea of uh, connecting with nature, going out for a walk, combining nature and some sort of movement is a very positive one for anxiety. But are there any other, any other routes that, that you would recommend to support your child who may be having anxious thoughts? I th-
1: I think <laughs> I'm going to be controversial here because I am a teacher. Um, but I think our children these days are put under much more pressure than 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 I was as a child. I mean, for example, I yeah, I had GCEs as they were called then and A and levels, basically kicked in when I was about 14 years old. We're now testing children from about five and six years old. And the thing is, I, I think the key is taking the pressure off when you need to. So I make it really clear to my children, this is where I'm gonna be controversial. You know, in, in the end, Key Stage 2 SATs tests, you go out and do your best. You, that's all it is. It's as simple as that. It's actually not really a measurement of you. It's a measurement of the school, if we were quite blunt about it, especially at Key Stage 2. And, you know, just just do the very best that you can. And, and you know, do not panic. And I've had that with both my children. They've they accepted it, and they've done quite well in the SATs. But the fact is, I know if I was a parent saying, you better do well in your SATs, you better do well in your SATs, you, in the end, if you do well in your key stage two sats, well done. But actually, it I can get you any GCSEs for later on in life. And it doesn't, it it's 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 a marker. Um and my son and in his key stage two sats was absolutely middle of the road. And yet by the end of secondary school, he got the highest A-level and GCSE grades in the school. And for me, we put, you know, we try, and and as parents, it's difficult because I'm a teacher, so obviously I'm in the education system. And and I think for parents, I sometimes think, oh, they should be doing well in the science. I don't want my child to fall behind. Da, 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 da. Just don't put that pressure on. Just go out and do your best. It's a, it's as simple as that. So I think it's a, a case of taking the pressure off children at times as much as we can. There's enough anxiety in school. And, you know, we've just had a, a, a COVID outbreak. I mean, I, I was scared as a child that I thought, that there was going to be world war every time I watched the news there was going to be world war that pales into its significance compared to what our children have, have been through where basically we, we, we've we been in it locked in houses for the best part of a couple of years and and it's a case that there's an illness out there that's like going to kill you and and I just I think the children have shown great resilience coming through that but we, we would be stupid to not think it's created more anxiety and far more difficulties in children. We've got a lot of damaged children now because of that, that, that two years. And we've got a lot of repairing to do. Then we really cross when there was so much debate about the academic needs of children. When the actual starting point is, let's make our children, make sure they're OK. Then when they're OK, we'll worry about the academic side. It, it was Parliament were making me feel pretty sick on all sides at that side because it was this constant thing about, let's keep children until six o'clock at night. You know, what oh, would that be my worst nightmare? Nine till six o'clock at night, doing extra work. No, no, no. Let's be kind to our children. Let's make sure they're all all right. Then we'll do the extra. And it's exactly the same with home education. Don't be blasted it. Oh, they missed so much work. I mean, obviously, we were some of us were home educating at that time as well. And, and, and I think a, a quite a lot of parents at that stage thought, actually, I can do this. And I'm capable of doing it. It gave some people the kick start. For other people, it made him realize it's it's the worst thing I could could ever do. Um, but it's making sure our children are well. We we you know, we we've got to realize they've been through something that as, that as children we never went through. And and the main thing is the well, and then then we'll worry about the academic side and, and that sort of thing. But putting pressure on children who've been through COVID to do well in exams. I'm finding that a little bit difficult I think there should have been a lot more look into the mental health side of things
0: I think a lot of that is is as well just about how we assess children because obviously mm. it's we can't it's impossible to assess and quantify a child's well-being and their mental health, whereas math skills and English language is it's much easier just to assess and therefore you're able to uh, grade it and then you're able to grade the school and then you've got data. And, and so it's it's something that it just is inherent in the school process. You mm-hmm. mentioned expectations and how important it is that we – um, don't put too much pressure on our on our children. And as a as a life coach to adults, I w- I see this a lot with with my adult clients. Is that they put a lot of expectations on themselves and that causes a huge amount of anxiety so I think actually it's probably a lesson we could all learn is to is to is to just to ease some of that pressure um that the expectations that we have of ourselves are often considerably higher and more unrealistic than anybody else would have of us and I think a lot of that does come from our childhood and from our school experience so you also mentioned bereavement so um tell me a little bit about uh your approach to bereavement in the book
1: yeah, it, it was, uh, obviously, I, I went through, a, a, I lived with my grandma from the age of 10. Um, my, my granddad died when it, he when it was 10 years old. Uh, my mum and dad had twins at that stage, and it wasn't unusual for, for a child to move to grandma's. I know that sounds weird now, but, and I went to live with my grandma, and I, I found that, that bereavement process very, very difficult, um, because I, I found, even though I was 10, I felt I was a young adult, but I felt like it was like things were taken out of my own. hand. like, well, should he go to the funeral? I could hear people talking on, should he, should he, you know, is he old enough to un- understand this? And is he old enough? And and, and from that age, I thought, actually, I, I want to go to the funeral and I, I want to be able to breathe. And I actually want to do something special. And I want to be able to talk positively about my granddad. Because all I was seeing was like everybody crying and everybody upset. And and there were part of me like, I don't want to remember this is the time of my granddad. And, and part of me does because part of me remembers my grandma coming in crying. And we're always going to have memories. We can't change that. But it was the fact that I want to remember positive things. So I remember going there and and somebody told a story. And I remember smiling. And that brought my granddad back. And it's that thing that I think that that we sometimes think with children that that we, we need to keep them away from it. But the fact is it is part of as part of life. And we we need to when when there is a bereavement, we need to explain it to children, talk to children about it, and also let children if they want to do something. I think there's nothing more beautiful than a child writing a poem to their granddad or their or whatever it might be, uh, and and that that remembrance that this this was my you know this was the person that I loved. Um, so just making making sure that they're part of it and understanding that it you know sadly bereavement is is part of our lives and. Actually, shielding children from it. Yes, of course, there's parts we need to shield from them, but actually, that they, they are part of that process. That somebody who's dear to them in their life has, has has disappeared as well.
0: Yeah, I completely agree, and I think, I think quite often in in so many areas, sometimes when we think that we are protecting our child from big emotions, we're actually making it harder for them to give them an outlet.
1: Yeah, hundred percent.
0: So maybe there is a last kind of thought or last advice that you would like to leave our listeners with today.
1: Um, well, I mean, it'd be fantastic if I say get Cam pond as, as, as a book, because obviously it would be really great for you. But I, I do think that, I've written the book because I think short stories are really excellent for children. I think they're excellent for parents as well, because the last thing you want to be doing is is spending half an hour with your child bored stiff at uh, you yeah, and then they're not asleep at the end of the half hour, which is the whole, the whole purpose of it. But just that, that it's meaningful as well, that we when we have a chance for meaningful dialogue, and I don't just mean with Pond, with anything that we see, if children see something... That we engage in them and we help, we make it a learning process, and especially with children that are obviously home educated, there is there is obviously more time where you're with your child, and there's going to come occasions when you can talk about this, and and just that they're prepared for for the things in life, and that we're creating the you know as well as those academic skills, those those strong life skills that that children really need,
0: and I think as well when when my children were learning to read we live we were living in egypt and the only books we had we had we had three julia donaldsons and the entire collection of little miss stories uh, because we bought them at a car boot sale in egypt as you do and and looking back my children learned to read using the little miss stories and then when we got back to england i bought all the mr men books and there are an awful lot of them and they are very much similar to what you're saying. They are short stories that look at a characteristic and and very gently, they nudge you towards, okay, why is it not nice to be Mr. Mean? Why yeah. is it nice to be Little Miss Sunshine? The fact that even as adults, I see girls in their 20s wearing Little Miss Sunshine T-shirts because yeah. there's something about this idea that certain characteristics and certain strengths are... Uh, just bring us joy as a society so okay so for all of our listeners I'm sure they can find Calm Pond on Amazon is it on Amazon
1: yeah it, it's it's on Amazon that, that that's the best place to find it at the moment yeah no problem all right
0: well thank you so much Richard for coming on the podcast today and talking to talking to us about your book Calm Pond but also about how to support well-being in children thank you so much for coming on
1: no thank you very much for your time
0: Thank you so much for joining us for today's Home Education Matters podcast. See you at the next one. Have a lovely day.